podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the show on Tuesday, December the 20th. It is a frisky seven degrees, little bit of wind, no rain yet, but the rain will come later so all the Irish people can grow. Uh, Tonight we have EFL Cup, so what a fantastic way to carry on from the World Cup, the drama, the sensation the grandiose nature of Messi versus Mbappe, Argentina versus France, and what better thing to have than Wolves versus Gillingham. Premier League versus League Two. And not exactly good League Two either. 
Gillingham are currently sitting in the bottom of League Two. And that is not an ideal place for them to be because relegation from League Two equates to conference football. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that this is disastrous for Gillingham because last season, if you remember or if you're aware, Gillingham were in League One. They were relegated having finished 21st of 24. So they they were the final team relegated. And as things stand, they are about to make a very quick trip from League One to the conference. They are level on points with Colchester. They do have a game in hand that can get them out of the relegation spots, but still, less than ideal. Now, in the last round, they did knock out Premier League Brentford on penalties after a 1-1 draw which was a pretty impressive result for them. Before that, they'd knocked out Exeter on penalties after a nil-nil draw. And prior to that, I haven't a Scooby who they beat in the... Oh, yeah, they beat they beat AFC Wimbledon, also League 2. Uh, 2-0. So this is a big step up for them from your lower league teams, but obviously having played a Premier League team in the last round, they will be fairly confident that they can get a result. But this is the first game that will be overseen for Wolves, who, remember, also sit bottom of their division, that being the Premier League. This will be the first game overseen by Julian Lopetegui, first competitive game. And you would expect Wolves to be significantly better than they were prior to the break. You would expect that having had All of this time to work with the players. Now, obviously, they had some players away at the World Cup. But most of their players were at home, in training, working with Lopetegui. He'll be working on the defensive shape and structure. He'll be making them very, very hard to beat first and foremost. Whether they can score any goals, we don't know. But you would expect them to beat Gillingham, largely because Gillingham just aren't very good. We've also got tonight MK Dons playing host to Leicester City. Leicester did turn things around in the league in recent well, recent weeks, the last few weeks before the World Cup break. They started out dreadfully and they were in the bottom three up until week 13, having sat dead bottom for four weeks of the five weeks of that run. Uh, they're now 13th though. There's far too much talent in that Leicester team to have been in that relegation scrap. Scrap is, you know, a bit strong, but they shouldn't have been in the bottom three. When you've got James Madison, a top 20 player in the league, you've got Yuri Thielemans, you've got Harvey Barnes, you really shouldn't be where they were. But they've turned things around and they need to continue to keep that going. They will face MK Dons next. MK Dons have recently changed managers they got rid of Liam Manning. They've currently got Dan Lewington in as interim manager. And we'll see how that goes. They're having a really poor season. They're 22nd in League One, which puts them three points outside the safe spots. In this competition, they knocked out Sutton, they knocked out Watford, and they knocked out Morecambe 
in truth, MK Dons should probably be hoping to go out of this competition right now because they need to focus in on the league. Unlike the Premier League, when things start to go wrong in the lower leagues, they can go wrong really quickly and it can be very, very hard to turn things around. Uh, we've also got Southampton versus Lincoln. Saints obviously change manager as well. We'll see how Nathan Jones does. Lincoln are a League One side. And again, Southampton should be heavily favoured to beat them. But in a cup, you just don't know. Lincoln are 14, so sitting in mid-table. To get to this stage of the competition, they knocked out Doncaster. They beat Barrow on penalties. And they beat Bristol City. Whereas the Saints... They beat Cambridge and then they beat Sheffield Wednesday on penalties. And the final game is the all-Premier League tie, the uh, the marquee game of the day. It's Newcastle United obviously having a really good season thus far, going very well in the Premier League. In the League Cup, they knocked out Tranmere and then beat Crystal Palace on pens. Bournemouth have had a really strange season. It obviously started very, very poorly for them. They sacked their manager. They got Gary O'Neill in. They went on a good unbeaten run. Then they lost four in a row in the league. But, joy of joys, they got two games against Everton. One in the league, one in the cup, and were able to win both. In this cup, they've beaten Bournemouth and, of course, Everton. So they've beaten Norwich and, of course, Everton. The Norwich game was a penalty shootout. It feels like Bournemouth could do with some momentum going in their way but with Newcastle the form that they ended the uh, the Premier League with before the World Cup break where they had won 7 of 8 and progressed in this competition it does feel like if they can carry that on certainly for the next couple of months I wouldn't imagine they'll carry it to the rest of the season but if they can carry that on for a bit longer the tune should go quite far in this competition. You know, as in terms of Premier League teams, we've got Leicester, we've got Wolves, we've got Southampton, Newcastle, Bournemouth. Uh, of Wednesday's games, we've got Nottingham Forest playing Blackburn, so Forest is a Premier League team, Brighton playing Charlton, and Manchester United Burnley. There's nobody there that Newcastle should think they're inferior to And then Thursday's game is Liverpool versus City. And the winner of that probably comes out as the favourite to win the competition. But after that, I mean, Newcastle and probably Manchester United, more on reputation than anything else, would be favoured to win this competition. And for a club like Toon, who haven't won anything in an awful long time, this might be their path to some silverware. I mean... They haven't won the league since 1927. They've never won the League Cup. They haven't won the FA Cup since 1955. The only things they've won since 1955 are the Intercity Fairs Cup, which nobody understands, and the Intertoto Cup, where you don't really win the competition. Like, a bunch of teams win the competition. So that year... The winners were Newcastle, who were deemed the overall winners. Whatever that meant, I don't know. Uh, Oxair, 
Grasshopper Zurich, Odense, Marseille, Hertha Berlin, Kaiserspor, Twente, Reed from Austria, Maribor, and Ethnikos Acne. I, I couldn't tell you. This was a silly competition. The Intertoto Cup was a very silly competition that didn't really make any sense. It was just like a back door into the UEFA Cup. And because Newcastle went the furthest in the UEFA Cup, they were deemed the overall winners. But there was 11 teams that technically won the Intertoto Cup that year. So I'm not giving them that. I'll give them the Fairs Cup in 69. I'll give them the Texaco Cup in 74 and 75. And the Anglo-Italian Cup, which they should bring back. That could be quite fun if they did it between the Championship and Serie B, if they did it between the Championship and the Secunda Division and League Two in France. I think these are things that could be quite... And second Bundesliga, if they got those together and did a big cup, I think that could be quite fun. Um, But no, they haven't won a real competition since the FA Cup in 1955. Uh, or if you want to give them the or class the um the intercity fairs cup in 1969 so this can be tunes path to silverware this year and they just need to you know beat bournemouth then they're in the last eight and then anything can happen from there so it should be a decent enough night of games i, I think the newcastle bournemouth game is obviously probably the one to watch but mk dons last it'll be interesting especially with Leicester being away. I think big pressure on Wolves and Southampton to try and get some wins under their belts. Saints, they've got such a young team. And I I really don't know about Nathan Jones. I I really do worry about them. Wolves, I think, will be fine this season, but I do worry about Southampton. Uh, Right, that's that. So, moving on. What I wanted to do today was give out some flowers. Obviously, Lionel Messi's gotten all the headlines because of the World Cup win. It's the crowning achievement of his career. And it for the silly people that think you need to win the World Cup to be the, the greatest player of all time, that's largely an American argument, I believe. I think that's where that comes from, the culture of American sports where you're judged on, you know, rings. And I was listening to, pardon the interruption, yesterday and Michael Wilbon, who I I think is one of the best around when it comes to the NBA. He's quite good on the NFL. He's decent on baseball. But he's a, a very, very casual fan of football. And he said, you know, you've got to, if you've got a, a main event competition, you've got to win that to be in the GOAT, competi- GOAT conversation. And see, the thing is, they look at it from... You know, Tom Brady won six Super Bowls. Michael Jordan won six NBA titles. Bill Russell won 11 NBA titles. But the difference is, those competitions are every year. The World Cup is every four years. You'd never say that if Michael Jordan hadn't won his Olympic gold medals, that wouldn't take away from the fact that he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And the Olympic basketball competition is basically you know their equivalent of the football world cup the champions league is the footballing equivalent to the super bowl or the nba title or 
the World Series because it's every year. It's the biggest competition every year. And Messi's won a bunch of them. So the World Cup didn't make much difference to his legacy other than the fact that he's now done it and he did it in outstanding fashion. He was incredible through the tournament. But the person I think that deserves huge, huge credit is Lionel Scaloni, the manager. Consider this, right? In 2018, this was the squad. Nahuel Guzman, not in the squad now. Gabriel Mercado, not in the squad. Tagliafico is in the squad. Ansaldi, not in the squad. Biglia, not in the squad. Fazio, not in the squad. Benega, not in the squad. Acuna is in the squad. Higuain, not in the squad. Messi in the squad. Di Maria in the squad. Franco Armani in the squad. Mesa, not in the squad. Mascherano, not in the squad. Enzo Perez, not in the squad. Rojo, not in the squad. Otamendi is in the squad. Salvio, not in the squad. Aguero, not in the, not in the squad. Lacelso would have been, but was injured. Dybala in the squad, Pavon not in the squad, and Caballero not in the squad. There are only six players from that last squad at the 2018 World Cup who were in this squad. There are seven who would have been if Lacelso doesn't get injured. That is a huge turnover of a World Cup squad. A huge turnover in four years. And you look at this current squad and, you know, Franco Armani is the reserve goalkeeper. He's there for experience and he's a great presence in the dressing room. But Juan Voigt has become a good squad player for them over the last couple of years. Uh, Tagliafico and Acuna, the left backs, are still the left backs. But the right back situation has changed completely with uh, Montiel and Nahual Molina making that position theirs to battle over. At centre-back, we've seen Pazella become a more regular in the squad and obviously was part of the World Cup group. We've seen Christian Romero emerge. We've seen Lisandro Martinez emerge. So again, he's changed the centre-back situation. In goal, Geronimo Rulli's gotten some opportunities and obviously Emmy Martinez has become number one under this goal, this this coach. So he's changed the goalkeeping makeup as well. And he's changed the midfield entirely. You look at the midfielders at this competition for them. Uh, Paredes, DePaul, Palacios, Almeida, Papagomes, Guido Rodriguez, Alexis McAllister, and Enzo Fernandez. None of them were in the squad pre-World Cup. Or sorry, uh, by 2018. They've all come through and developed and really made spots their own under this manager. In attack, you've still got Messi and Di Maria, but Alvarez, Correa, and Laturo, they've all emerged fully under Scaloni. Dybala was there before Scaloni. Going into this World Cup, Nicolas Gonzalez was in the squad, another one that wasn't in the last squad. He got injured and was replaced by Angel Correa. Joaquin Correa got injured and he was replaced by Thiago Almada. So again, Joaquin Correa is another player who Scaloni has put faith in and 
incorporated in his squad. So I, I spoke about Belgium a couple of weeks ago and the failure of Roberto Martinez to really turn that squad over. And there's a few others that have suffered from the same issue where they haven't turned the squad over. Argentina have. And I know a lot of people, you know, I've seen people say, oh, well, this is the worst team to win a World Cup in in years and, and stuff like that. And I sort of... Emi Martinez is a good goalkeeper. Nahuel Molina is a really good right-back. Christian Romero is a really good centre-back. Otamendi's decent. Tagliafico's okay. But as a five... I think that's quite strong. I do think that's quite strong as a five-man unit. I think the midfield of DePaul, Enzo Fernandez, and McAllister is excellent. And I think in years to come, as Enzo develops, and we see the full range of ability, I think people will look back on that midfield a little bit differently. The same thing up front as Alvarez develops. You've got Di Maria, you've had Paredes play games, you've had Guido Rodriguez play games. They're they're good players. And obviously, there's Messi. So, while I wouldn't say it's as good as, say, the Spanish squad that won it in 2010, it's probably not as good as the Germans that won it in 2014, I think it's every bit the match of, say, the Italians that won it in 2006. I think it's comparable to the Brazil team that won it in 02. Like, Dida wasn't a better goalkeeper than Emi Martinez. They were about the same level, but Dida was hugely overrated. Defensively, they weren't brilliant individuals. Lucio was the best of them. They obviously had the wingbacks that got a lot of people excited, but it was kind of the wingbacks in the front three and the rest of it, Gilberto Gilberto Silva was brilliant, but the rest of it wasn't top-end talent. Whereas, you know, you can argue Molina is one of the, I think, one of the better right-backs in world football. I think Romero is one of the best centre-backs in world football. I think Enzo is going to develop into one of the best midfielders in world football. Alexis is outstanding and Messi is the greatest of all time. So I don't know that it's all that much worse than that Brazil team in 2 Not as good as the French side that won it in 98, but is it much worse than the Brazil side that won it in 94? I mean, that team had Romario and Bebeto up front, but the midfield was largely grafters. The defence was solid but unspectacular. I I don't feel like it, it's a worse team than that. I just think people assumed because they lost to Saudi Arabia that they were no-hopers. But when we look at what Argentina have done at this World Cup, I think, again, you've got to give enormous credit to this manager and what he's been able to to accomplish and, and how he's gone about 
changing the team throughout the tournament. So they start off in the group against Argentina. Sorry, against against Saudi Arabia. And they go Martinez, Molina, Romero, Otamendi, Tagliafico. That's the defense, by the way, that went on to win it. DePaul, Paredes, who lost his place. Di Maria, who lost his place but got back in for the final and obviously rewarded the, the faith. And Papu Gomez was the other winger. He lost his place. Messi and Latura Martinez, who lost his place. So that's the team for the first game. They lined up in a 4-4-2 with Di Maria one wing, Gomez the other, Martinez and Messi through the middle, Paredes and Paul as a double pivot. Next up, they face Mexico. Again, they go 4-4-2. But Montiel, Montiel comes in at right back. Lisandro Martinez comes in at centre-back because Romero got hurt. Acuna comes in at left-back. DePaul plays, but Guido Rodriguez comes in in midfield. Alexis McAllister comes in on the left wing. So there's Alexis in, Acuna in. Their decisions the managers made, and Guido Rodriguez, sorry. There's three decisions the managers made based on form. Five changes overall. They beat Mexico. Next up, they face Poland. Molina comes back. Romero comes back because they are the first choice. And they'd been injured the previous game rather than, well, they'd had niggles rather than been uh, dropped. Otamendi plays. Acuna keeps his place. Enzo starts for the first time with Rodrigo de Paul and Alexis McAllister. This time in a 4-3-3 with Di Maria, Messi and Alvarez up front. So Alvarez is now in the team. So again, you've got Enzo starting You've got Alvarez starting. Alexis has kept his spot. Acuna has kept his spot. And they beat Poland 2-0. So change of shape for the third game. But significant changes to the starting 11 from the first game to the third game. We go into the knockouts. And again, they line up in a 4-3-3. Papu Gomez comes in for Di Maria, who was rested, I believe, for this game. The midfield stays the same, and the defence stays the same. So now he's settled on something. Now he knows what he wants. They beat Australia 2-1. A little bit fortunate at the end, but a win is a win, and through they go. We go into the quarterfinals, they face the Dutch, and he changes things by going to a back three. So Molina and Acuna play as wing-backs. Romero, Otamendi. He brings in Lissandro Martinez into midfield. He keeps the same midfield three. DePaul, Enzo, McAllister. Alvarez and Messi. So he drops out Papu Gomez and he brings in Lissandro Martinez. Does not bring back Di Maria, who's now ready to go. They win the game on penalties, they should have won the game 2-0. They, once they scored their second, that should have been it. But they allowed it to slip through their fingers a little bit, but they won it on penalties and on they go. Semi-finals. He changes it again. He goes back to the 4-4-2 that he started the competition with. But it's different personnel. Rather than playing in central midfield, Rodrigo de Paul is now playing on the right. Paredes is back in. 
Paredes had been dropped, but kept involved with substitute appearances. Really well managed to keep him locked in so that when they needed him, he could turn up. Tagliafico the same. He'd lost his place. But he'd been kept involved. He'd come on as a sub. And he still felt part of the group. Romero and Otamendi at centre-back. Molina and Tagliafico. Paredes, like I mentioned, in Enzo keeps his spot. And McAllister keeps his spot. And he sticks with a front two. He sticks with Alvarez and Messi because that's what's worked. And they, let's be fair, they comprehensively beat Croatia. But what else did he do in that game? He gave Ezekiel Palacios a run in case he needed him again. He gave Dybala a run to get him some more minutes in the legs. He gave Angel Correa and Juan Foyt late appearances to keep them locked in and feeling like they were part of the squad, feeling like they had a part to play in this success. And then on to the final. And he shifts it again and he goes 4-3-3, but it's a very flexible 4-3-3. Di Maria, who's largely played on the right, this time plays on the left. And what that allows them to do is when they have the ball, they go 4-3-3. When they don't have the ball, they flex out into a 4-4-2. DePaul pushes to the right, Di Maria drops to the left, and that becomes a compact bank of four in front of that defence. And again, it's Tagliafico back in at left-back, keeping that role. I think this is a masterclass in how to manage a tournament. I really do. In terms of the ability to manage a squad, first of all, like I mentioned, turning the squad over the way he has in four years, really impressive. More impressive is the results that they've had. I mean, he's overseen 57 games. They've won 37, drawn 15, and lost only five. And most of those five came in his first 12 or 14 games. 113 goals scored, so over two per game. No, sorry, just under two per game. Just literally just a fraction under two per game. But only conceded 35. That's elite level. That's elite level defending. And one thing they didn't get enough credit for through this tournament was how well they defended. But the reason for that is because they had those two late wobbles. Remember, the two goals they conceded in the group stage to Saudi Arabia came really close together. And the second one was probably a result of being shell-shocked from the first one. There's five minutes between that first one and the second one. They came out, they dominated the first half, should have been 3-0 up, had a couple of goals disallowed. Rightly so, by the way, the offsides were correct. But they came out in the second half, and it seemed to me like they started really slowly, as if thinking, well, this is going to be a walk in the park. Three minutes into that second half, Saudi Arabia scored. Argentina are shell-shocked. And five minutes later, Saudi Arabia score again and go on to win the game because Argentina couldn't react to it. But, you know, you look at the players that started that first game who didn't start the final. Martinez, but he came on in the final. 
And in the penalty shootout against the Netherlands, he stepped up big because Scaloni had kept him in the right frame of mind. Rather than focus on the fact that he just lost his place to a largely unproven 22-year-old, he kept him in the mix, bringing him off the bench and putting him in positions where he felt like he was making important contributions. Papu Gomez... He drops him, but he does bring him back later in the tournament. And again, if he'd needed him in the final, he would have been able to call on him. And Paredes, and like I said, really good management, really good management with him throughout the tournament. But if you think about it, there's eight players who start the first game that start the last game. The three who don't are Paredes, Gomez, and Martinez. But Di Maria lost his place during the tournament. And Tagliafico also lost his place during the tournament. But by keeping them involved, by managing them correctly, when he needed them, they were able to come back in and they played at an improved level. I think he's done brilliantly. And the tactical changes to go from 4-4-2 to 4-3-3 to the back three against the Dutch to 4-4-2 again in the semi-final and then the, the 4-3-3, 4-4-2 hybrid in the final. To get every decision like that correct, and he got every single decision right. Every single decision. After that first game, it is a masterclass in how to run a tournament. By Lionel Scaloni. Squad management, tactical tweaks, structure, and their defensive structure remained the same regardless. Even in the back three, they were still doing the same things. Because Tagliafico would, or Acuna as it was more often when they played when they played the back three, it was Acuna that started. He was largely playing as the left-sided midfielder. DePaul was cheating across to the right. Martinez was, Lissandro Martinez was kind of covering the left-back channel. And Nahuel Molina was playing a little bit more conservative. And he was able to get a tune out of every single player. There's not one Argentine player that hasn't made a contribution, who got the opportunity to play. There's not one. Like, even people like Foyt, who only played a couple of minutes, did well when he came on and was able to help them see out a game. The same thing with Angel Correa. You don't have much time on the pitch, but you're going to go and you're going to run, you're going to work the channels, and you're going to give us an outball. Armani didn't play. But Foyt had that good 10-minute cameo, whatever it was. Tagliafico played a big role. Montiel, who got in, was dropped out, scores the winning penalty in the shootout. Paredes, when they needed him, stepped up big, scored a penalty. Pazella, when he was called upon, came on, headed it, kicked it, fought for everything, gave them solidity at the back. Rodrigo de Paul. Started the tournament quite poorly, but as it went on, as the manager kept faith in him, knowing what he was capable of, because it would have been easy to drop him at certain points, but he grew and grew in strength. He was good against the Dutch. He was great against Croatia. His first half against France was outstanding. Seemed to tire a little bit as the game went on, but he was really, really good for this tournament. Acuna, when needed, very, very good. Alvarez, Got his opportunity, seized it with both hands, 
and did everything that was asked of him. Messi, we've talked about. Di Maria, how easy would it have been for him to pout and sulk? He needed to be left out of the Australia game because he wasn't 100%. But then he wasn't started in the Dutch game and he wasn't started in the Croatia game. And it would have been easy for him to lose focus as one of the star names in the team. But Scaloni had kept him involved and kept him right. And when he needed him in the final, he got an outstanding performance. Ruli didn't play. Romero was excellent. Palacios didn't play a bunch, but when he was on the pitch, he largely played quite well. Angel Correa came on and just ran his, ran his arse off when he was on the pitch. Uh, Thiago Almada, I don't think, played. I think I'm right in saying he didn't play. Did he? Maybe he did. I don't think he played. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe he did play. I'm not going to go back and look at subs that come on every... Actually, I might as well. Um, He didn't come on against Saudi Arabia. He didn't come on against Mexico. Oh, he did. He came on against Poland. Came on with seven minutes left. One of those, go on, work really hard and, and don't do anything silly. I think that might be his only his only outing because I don't remember seeing him in the knockout phases. Nope. Unless he come on in the Australia game. No. No, that was his... So he came on, he came on for one sub-appearance. But again, he played in a World Cup. So when he looks at his World Cup medal, he'll know he earned it because he got to play in a World Cup. So, you know, at at 21, as Almeida is, he's a big part of their future. He's a super talented player. Uh, Atlanta United have got a belter there. I I wouldn't be surprised if he's moving to Europe in the next 18 months. Papu Gomez played, didn't play well, but got more opportunities, stayed involved, and, and eventually gave him a good performance. Guido Rodriguez, only the one start, but, you know, worked really hard. So he, he played his part. Otamendi obviously played throughout the tournament. Alexis McAllister, I think him coming into the team is one of the biggest reasons they went on to win the competition. Dybala, when it, Dybala wasn't fit. Dybala probably shouldn't have been in the squad. But knowing that he would be fit by the end of the tournament and knowing what he could provide... He kept him in the squad. And he stepped up in a World Cup final and scored a penalty. Laturo, like I've mentioned, didn't have a great World Cup in terms of performance, but came up big in big moments when they needed him to. And they could call on him to come on, work hard, run the channels, harass defenders, take some of the legwork off Messi, and scores that big penalty against the the Dutch. and, And that's... That's what his legacy is for the World Cup. Emmy Martinez. Emmy Martinez won the Golden Glove. That's farcical. He wasn't the best goalkeeper in the competition. But, but, he did make the biggest save, maybe in World Cup final history. That last minute save 
from Colo, Mart- uh, Colo Moani. And he is entirely the work of Scaloni. Because in 2020, when Aston Villa bought him, he was incredibly inexperienced. He played 38 games for Arsenal, despite having been at the club for nine years. He'd been out on loan and he'd played 30, 65, 66, 74. So he played 112 senior games in his career before Aston Villa bought him. 112 senior games. He was 28 years of age. And now at the age of 30, he's first choice for Villa, established as one of the best goalkeepers in the league. He's got 26 caps for Argentina, all in the last two years. And he's won the World Cup, the Copa America, and the Cup of Champions. What an amazing turnaround. Now, he'd obviously played an important role for Arsenal in that 1920 season um, when Leno got injured. But I, I think he, you know, his performance in the FA Cup final as well for Arsenal was what really made people sit up and take notice of him. I still don't understand why Arsenal sold him. Like, he's a significantly better goalkeeper than Aaron Ramsdale. But he is entirely Scaloni's work in terms of the national team. Enzo Fernandez, when he came into the team, everything changed for Argentina. Everything changed. Everything made sense. They became more fluid in their shape. The structure became more solid, more defensively dominant. Really, really good. Lissandro Martinez, again, when needed, came on, was 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 a sub, was a sub, no, was a sub, started the second game, dropped out after a pretty good performance and could have powdered himself, but was kept involved on as a sub, on as a sub. You're now starting against the Dutch. Decent performance out of the team, on as a sub in the semi-final. Wasn't needed in the final, but overall, pretty good World Cup. And Nahuel Molina, I think a lot of people probably weren't aware of him because he'd been at Udinese, went to Atleti in the summer. He He's really, really good. He is one of the better right-backs in the world. Not from an attacking... He is good going forward, but defensively, he's excellent. He's got that pace, that reading of the game. He's really good with his judgment, doesn't jump in. He can turn inside or outside. So if they try and run him down the line, he'll match them. If they try and cut back, come inside, he can get uh, get himself adjusted really quickly. He's really, really good. That squad is the work of Lionel Scloney. There are only three players in that squad with more than 47 appearances. Paredes is 46. The, oh, oh, Paredes is 46, and the only players with more caps than him in the squad are Messi, Di Maria, and Otamendi. So it's not a hugely experienced squad at international level. Like, Molina had 20 caps going into the World Cup. Romero was in... Romero had 12. 
Tagliafico had 42. Emmy Martinez had 19. Enzo had three. Alexis had eight. Rodrigo de Paul had 44. Alvarez had 12. Like, this is a, a really... Not young squad, though it, it is quite young. Um, But it's an inexperienced squad at international level. And he's just been able to, to get the best out of everybody. Everybody. Maybe not their best level of performance, but their best level of application, their best work rate. And I think he deserves incredible credit for what he's done. I really do. I think he deserves incredible credit for what he's done. And I'm I'm really hopeful he'll stick in the job for now because he'll definitely be getting offers to go elsewhere. You can basically write your own ticket when you've done what he's done in the last 18 months, winning the Copa and now the World Cup. Amazing. We'll take a break. When we come back, it's just really the gossip. So we'll see you then. Right, welcome back. So, as is expected, most of the coverage on BBC is regarding the World Cup, Argentina celebrations, Messi pictured in bed with the World Cup trophy, Argentina have returned home, a bank holiday was declared, largely, I think, because absolutely nobody was going to work, because that is a party that might not stop till New Year. What a Christmas it's going to be in Argentina. Like, I saw somebody say this the other day, and I thought, that that sums things up. If you like football, you like you, you follow Brazil. If you love football, you follow Argentina. Because in Argentina, football is the religion. Now, it's Likewise in Brazil for many, but they've got other things that they pursue as well. In Argentina, it's a single focus. And that party, that that scene on that street with over 2 million people was is still one of the most incredible things I've seen. And I've been watching that drone footage over and over again, and it is just amazing. Nobody, nobody in Argentina is going to be sober for three weeks and they shouldn't be world cup into christmas into new year what a time what a time for them and what i loved was i saw footage from naples of napoli fans many of whom weren't old enough to have seen diego maradona play for napoli or even at all celebrating Argentina's victory by singing Maradona's name. I think that kind of encompasses what Maradona means to Naples and to his homeland. I mean, many people are out celebrating with flags of him singing his name all over Buenos Aires. Maradona transcends football in those countries. He is more than just a football player. And that is why I, I that is what his impact is. Um, Messi has 
has actually broken uh, Instagram's record for the most liked post, uh, beating an egg, um, a picture of an egg. I, why a picture of an egg had so many likes, I don't know, but it did. And Lionel Messi has gotten 47 million likes for his collection of pictures that he put up celebrating. Actually, I tell a lie. He has 60 million pictures, 60 million likes celebrating the picture he put up. The world record was an egg that had 56 million. An egg. Ridiculous. Prior to that, it was a picture held by Kendall, sorry, Kylie Jenner of 18 million, and somebody just wanted her not to have that record. Put up a picture of an egg. The egg, by the way, now has uh, nearly 5 million followers and got 56.6 million likes, which is is everything that's wrong with social media, but also very funny. Uh, Messi has 60.6, probably more by the time you hear this, likes on his pictures. That's that's very cool. Uh, Benzema has retired from the French national team. Uh, I don't know that many people within the squad will be all that upset by that news. He doesn't seem to have been a very popular figure. There's a good article on the BBC website entitled Five Interesting Trends. Sorry. Five Interesting Trends from the 2022 World Cup. So do give that a read. There's also a piece about Brighton wanting to keep McAllister. That's also worth a while giving a quick eye to. Let's rush through the gossip. We're having dreadful technical difficulties here and I can't be arsed for much longer. Everton are close to agreeing a new contract with Anthony Gordon to stave off interest from Chelsea. They're going to overpay him. He's been shown to be nothing more than an average player with pace. N'Golo Kante is pushing for a move to Barcelona when his Chelsea deal expires in the summer and is in advanced talks over a pre-contract agreement. PSG will open talks with Messi following his World Cup heroics with his current contract expiring next summer. I think he leaves PSG, probably goes to Barcelona for a year or two, and then ends up in MLS. Bayern Munich are interested in signing Emi Martinez. No, I wouldn't I wouldn't think they are. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach and Switzerland goalkeeper Jan Sommer is in talks with Bayern Munich over a move after Manuel Nauer broke his leg. That one I could see happening. Carlo Ancelotti has distanced himself from the Brazil job, saying he wants to stay with the European champions. That may be the case, but let's see what happens come the summer. Real, uh, sorry, Fran- France forward Kylian Mbappe could soon announce he will leave PSG at the end of the season with Real Madrid interesting, interested. That would be... That's what Real want more than anything. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, I wouldn't be surprised if he does end up there. Maybe not at the end of this season, but certainly the end of next season. Barcelona are keen on Josip Juranovic of Celtic, but face competition from Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid have a better right back. I like Juranovic. He's not good enough to play for Barcelona. Napoli director of football, Cristiano Gentulu, Gentoli? I, I don't know. At this point, I don't care. Has dismissed Newcastle's chances of signing 21-year-old Georgian winger Kvice Kvaratskhelia. He's not going to leave Napoli anytime soon. He he seems to love it there. Tottenham are interested in Jordan Pickford as a long-term replacement for Hugo Lloris. That would be an awful signing. Thankfully for Spurs fans, this comes from Wayne Vesey, as we know, a spoofer. Arsenal will open talks with Bikayo Saka over a new deal in the coming weeks and months. 
It's from caught offside. I assume it's from Romano. The coming weeks and months is the type of thing spoofers say. But they need to get working on a Saka deal because he's had a contract in 2024. And if they let him hit his last 12 months, they're in big trouble. Former Real Madrid boss Zinedine Zidane could replace Didier Deschamps as coach of the French national team. It's what needs to happen. Arsenal and Leeds are set to join the race to sign Matthias Cunha with Atletico Madrid prepared to sell. It does look like Wolves are leading that race, though. So I'm expecting that he ends up with Wolves. He'd be a great signing for them, but he needs to get goals. Chelsea are confident they can seal the signing of Josco Guardiol. It's 90minute.com. It's probably crap. Benfica are keen on signing Jean Duran with Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester United. Also keen in the 19-year-old Colombian striker. Plays for Chicago Fire. Very talented player. Everton midfielder Alex Iwobi is set to sign a new deal with Everton. Makes sense. Well, obviously makes sense he would sign, that Everton midfielder would sign a new deal with Everton. Chelsea are in contention to sign Borussia Dortmund's 18-year-old Germany striker, Yusofa Makoko, in January. I don't think he's leaving in January, but it'll be pre-contracts for him, whatever happens. Inter Milan have initiated contact about signing Chris Smalling on a free when his contract runs out in the summer. Yeah, whatever. Milan Skriniar has yet to respond to Inter Milan about the offer of a contract extension. His contract's out in the summer. Smalling would be the replacement for him. It's a significant downgrade, but Inter don't have a whole lot of cash. Uh, Inter are considering a move for former Watford midfielder Roberto Perea. Pereira? When the Argentines' Udinese contract expires. I mean, this is what I mean. Inter, Inter just doing strange things. Former West Ham and QPR defender Anton Ferdinand. This This is a lie, right? This is a lie. Says he could have signed for Barcelona, but Alan Pardew didn't allow the move. Now, let's just take a quick look at Anton Ferdinand. He was at Barcelona from 03, sorry, at West Ham rather, from 03 to 08. So at that time, Barcelona had Puyol and Rafael Marquez. And then they brought back Gerard Piquet. So he says it was in 2006 that they made an inquiry for him. I really don't think so. I, I really don't think so. By 2006, it was fairly clear that Anton Ferdinand wasn't nearly as good as his brother and wasn't going to be a top-end defender. I mean, he ended up going to Sunderland, didn't do great there, went to QPR, and then sort of bounced around for the rest of his career. I'm, I'm not having that... I'm not having that Barcelona were in from in 2006. They just won the European Cup. I'm not having it. That'll do me for today, folks. Thank you as always. See you tomorrow. Hopefully the gremlins in my computer work themselves out. And it's a nice, smooth podcast tomorrow, whereas this is probably a bit jumbly. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.